0: See, you have made it back. Be with us this evening. Take your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 14. Let me just give you a little heads up about how the service is going to go. Let um, me give the message, and then after the message, I'll call us into a business meeting. Brother James will come and give us a brief synopsis of what it is that we're voting on. During that time, we'll be passing out ballots and asking you to cast your ballots for or against uh, the proposal of uh, redoing our building uh, specifically for the youth. We've done it for the children. We also want to do that for the youth. In so doing, we will also gain some new adult uh, education areas. And the addition of an elevator would very much help our adults to get to these areas. It would give us access to this building, to the educational building, and to the gym, all at this, uh, through this one-access area. So that's what we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But for right now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter twenty. In verse 14, we have been in a series of entitled Channel Markers with the premise that God has given us the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes as channel markers to help us navigate our way through life without finding ourselves shipwrecked. Tonight we're looking at command number seven and I'm going to do my best to make this a PG-rated sermon we're going to be dealing with you shall not commit adultery. It's hard to conceive of a society that more needs to hear the Lord's words about sexual purity in general and the protection of marriage in particular than our own. And there is no area in which channel markers are more needed for the modern Christian to safeguard themselves. When you get married, you make a lifetime commitment before God to remain faithful to that one partner no matter what. Unfortunately, some marriages seem more like jail than they do joy. That is not God's intention for marriage. Some come to think of their marriage as a horrible mistake because their marriage is characterized by dryness and frustration but even if that is true it does not justify one in betraying the vows that they took adultery is a particularly insidious force in any culture because it destroys the foundation of the family adultery is a bad thing and it's to be avoided because marriage is a good thing and it's to be protected Adultery makes something ugly that God created to be beautiful. Marriage failure rarely happens overnight. It almost always begins in our minds. We put into action what we have already contemplated in our minds. The first thing that I would like for you to see tonight is the biblical mandate The seventh commandment is simply stated and clearly stated, you shall not commit adultery. There is no great mystery here. Most understand adultery is a sexual relationship between two people who are not married to each other. But it is more than that. It is any impure relationship or inordinate affection no matter how it is expressed. The second thing, and the thing that we will spend the most of our time tonight, is the biblical example. So I'd invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. The Bible presents a case study of lust and what it brought into one man's life. It is the sordid tale of David and Bathsheba. You, of course, remember who David is. David was the greatest king of the nation of Israel. I want to show you the steps in his life that caused such a great failure. First of all, he was not where he should have been, verse number 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Let me begin by making an observation about something in the text that might not be so obvious to us in our culture and setting we need to remember that farmers, not professional soldiers, carried out warfare in ancient Israel. There were no standing armies in Israel or any other nation for that matter. These farmer soldiers had to take a break from their war periodically to go back home and farm the land and care for their families. When the seed was planted in the ground and the harvest was some months off, there was a period in which the armies would often re-engage in warfare. So it was in the springtime, and we are told it was at that time that the kings go off to war. They were properly expected to lead their armies in battle. The descent into adultery and its outcome usually doesn't happen overnight, as I said. A series of steps, none large, perhaps, takes one nearer and nearer the edge of the cliff. Each small step by itself may not be particularly dangerous, but if they accumulate, we end up in a very dark place indeed. Moral failure is the culmination of a process, not merely a single act. Immorality begins with the little things that feed the appetite for sensual sin. It is a nonchalant flirting with sin. He was in a place where he should not have been. Secondly, he lingered when he should have left. It says in verse number 2, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Notice it says one evening David arose from his bed. He's either been taking a nap or he has not yet bothered to get out of bed. Neither speak well of a leader of a mighty nation. The nature of David's heart is revealed in the Hebrew verb that is translated walked around. It literally means going backward and forward and getting nowhere. David is restless and no doubt because he is where he should not be. And he knows it. Now the palace roof was perhaps the highest in the city. So that no one could look down upon the king. On this particular evening, David steps out onto the flat roof of his palace to survey the capital city, his city. As he does so, his attention is drawn to a woman on another lower roof here he notices a woman in the act of bathing David sees a woman who was very beautiful to look upon the Hebrew literally reads she was of good appearance exceedingly David who is used to indulging his sensual appetites sees the prospect of one more woman to be added to his already large harem Instead of fleeing as Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39, David lingered for another look. The Apostle Paul warns in his letter to the church at Corinth, flee sexual immorality. The first look was not David's fault. The subsequent lingering second look was third he inquired about something that was none of his business it says in verse 3 so david sent and inquired about the woman and someone said is this not bathsheba the daughter of and the wife of uriah the hittite he inquires about something that's not really any of his business and he has no good reason for asking Even so, he does not get the answer that he wants. Not only is she not available, she is married. Not only is she married, she is married to one of his own soldiers. Not only was her husband one of David's mighty men, but her her father, Eliam, was also one of David's mighty men, and her grandfather, Ahithophel, was David's counselor. David now has a choice. He can either commit adultery, explicitly breaking one of the Ten Commandments and take advantage of one of his most loyal soldiers or he can control himself. David chooses wrongly. David chooses an illicit relationship. The story, if it teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that no one is exempt from a fall and that you are never too old to make a fool of yourself. Of all the characters in the Old Testament, perhaps no man would have seemed less likely to fail as David. There is no other man in the Bible perhaps, that was more devoted to God. It was David who conquered the city of the Jebusites and turned Jerusalem into the holy city of God. It was David who wrote most of the book of Psalms. It was David who first envisioned building a great temple for the glory of God. It was David whose scripture describes as a man after God's own heart. And yet this same man, seemingly without hesitation, abandoned his walk with God for one afternoon of pleasure. No one is exempt from moral failure. No one. The apostle Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, him who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Every step along the way was an occasion to stop. He could have stopped at the first glance. He could have stopped the fascination when it was growing. He could have stopped before he investigated. And certainly after he investigated and who and heard who she was, he could have stopped, but he did not. The process that David goes through mirrors the procession of sexual sin in almost any life. The beginning glance, the lingering look, the imagined experience, the growing fascination, and then the act. One can imagine how David tried to rationalize this in his own mind. She's alone. I'm alone. God wants me to be happy. No one will ever know. My marriage to Michael was never God's will in the first place. It's just miserable. Lust had already done its work. Number four, he arranges for something he knows is wrong. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. In a matter of moments, this great man had tarnished his integrity. He had imperiled his kingdom. He had dishonored the name of his God, and he had given the enemies of God grounds to blaspheme. And then, in these events, we are forced to question, David, how could you fall so low? For David, the conqueror of Goliath and of the Philistines, is now conquered by his own passions. Not even a man after God's own heart is immune to a fall. Few things frighten me more than the testimony of David's life. We too could be persons of character and integrity and in a moment destroy our testimonies and our families through the choices that we make to gratify our own passions. We cannot afford to justify the behavior of David and Bathsheba by extending our sympathy. In our culture, we justify immoral behavior with the excuse that these two people were in love Even if two people are emotionally entangled, we should never call self-gratification and the breaking of a promise to God and to others, love. Number five, he faced the consequences, he faced consequences he never envisioned. The rest of the story is well known. It was just a one night stand and then she went home. But not long after, David gets a message that will change his life forever. He gets the message, I'm pregnant. How could this even happen? They were only together one time. David is nothing if not resourceful. David's actions with Bathsheba had been cloaked in secrecy and deception And I believe that if she had not become pregnant, I don't think she would have ever seen David again. David knew that he could not make Bathsheba his wife. He is not even interested at this point in an ongoing affair with her. He just wanted a one-night stand with her, after which he was content to allow her husband to have her back. But when David got the news... He had a decision to make. He could take one of two courses. He could go before the Lord, confess, declare his guilt. Or he could go the route of deception and hypocrisy. Sadly, David chose the latter, which led him into even further and more horrible sin. Choosing to lie and deceive set in motion a series of heartaches that will affect not only his life but the life of his family for years to come. David was a fool to try to cover up his sin. The choice to lie ends up making you a liar. And lies don't just float away. Often children's stories have at their core wisdom about the human condition. We all know the story of Pinocchio, the puppet who became, who came to life. Pinocchio found that when he lied, his nose grew. He was changed by the lies that he told. And so are we, even if our noses don't grow, our lives are changed. David had never intended for this one-night stand to turn into a A pregnancy. He thought his sin would stay usefully contained. He thought he could manage it. But he was wrong. He thought he could bring Uriah home and that Uriah would act in a predictable way. And that that would solve the problem. No one would be the wiser. The truth is that the results of sinful choices are not easily managed don't listen to the voices that tell you that sin can be managed and that sin does not hurt anyone it does David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah cripples God's purpose in his life it devastates both his future and those closest to him and sin always does David had thought that killing Uriah would solve the issue, but he had reckoned without one crucial factor. Verse number 27 says, But the thing that God had done displeased the Lord. David forgotten one thing. It was the same thing that Moses forgot when he killed the Egyptian. It is the same thing that we forget every time we fall into sin. David had forgotten that everything is done that is done is done in the sight of God. It was known to God. And eventually, unfortunately for him, it's going to be known to the whole world. The third thing that I want you to see is the biblical update. In fact, we go to the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Jesus said that he had not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Rather than dismissing the idea of adultery as being no longer culturally relevant, Jesus raised the bar. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus underlines that statement, moral failure begins in the mind. If we take Jesus' words seriously in the Sermon on the Mount, there are some things that we must do and some things that we must eliminate. Obviously, I can't cover all of those tonight for you. So I'm just going to give you a couple. First of all, some things to eliminate. We have to eliminate in our hearts and minds the acceptance of our modern concept of serial monogamy. Serial monogamy means that we're only married to one person but that's marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage. We also need to understand that we need to avoid developing emotional bonds with anyone other than our spouse most adulterous relationships do not begin with sex. They start from inappropriate intimacy. Some things that we can do. We can monitor input. There are, of course, many things that we must guard our minds against. Obviously, that applies to pornography. Pornography causes us to think of people as Objects rather than individuals who are created in the image of God. It also includes mind numbing exposure to sex on television. Specifically to the men, because you are visually stimulated, we need to guard what we allow into our eyes. It may be that you should cancel your subscription to HBO and Showtime and Cinemax and stop watching things you know you should not. Be careful of what you watch and what you read. Even on regular television, the majority of the sexual relationships that are depicted on television are not between married partners, at least not married to each other. Lee Strobel says studies have shown that over 90% of all the intimate encounters on television and in the movies are between unmarried people before the average american turns 18 he or she will have witnessed more than 80 or 70,000 images of sexual relationships or suggested sexual intimacy between people who are not married to each other. It also applies to what we read. Ladies, I may be stepping off in it here. But breaking the seventh commandment is not only viewing pornography, but also by reading sexual literature. And many of the romance novels that are on the shelves today are no more than soft porn It also applies to suggestive lyrics and songs. The truth is that we have become so numb to the proliferation of sexual language in pop music, it no longer even concerns us. But it should. I did a little research this afternoon, and I'd be too ashamed to begin to tell you the lyrics of some of the pop songs of our day. It's incredible. Some of you would say, well, I don't listen to pop music. I listen to country western. I'm afraid that's not going to help you much. Some of the lyrics of those songs are horrible. We need to be careful what we look at, what we listen to. We need to monitor our input. But that alone is not enough. We need to reprogram our mind. It's not just a matter of not doing bad stuff. We should be making some positive steps. Our society spews out propaganda that real fun in life is living in an unrestricted sexual environment with all restraints out of the way. But that's not what God says. Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4 beginning in verse number 3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That is, no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such and as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanliness but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man but God who has given us the Holy Spirit. I want to close with a story of how purity can have a positive influence even on others. William Weilman, dean of chapel at Duke University, tells this story. He'd been speaking at a conference on evangelism in the Episcopal Church. Following his address, a young man came to talk with him. He told Wilman about a young woman he had met in California. They were on their first date. It went well. Toward the end of the evening, she said to him, well, do you want to go to my place or yours? He turned to her and said, what are you talking about? She said, you know, Don't you find me attractive? He replied, of course, but this is our first date. I hardly know you. We can't sleep together. She said, but I always sleep with guys on my first date. He said, I don't do that. She replied, why don't you do that? He answered by saying, because um, um, uh, I'm an Episcopalian. We're funny about who we sleep with. Episcopalian? What is that? Well, it's kind of a Christian, he replied. He told her about his church. She was fascinated. He invited her to visit a church with him. She did. And three weeks later, she became a Christian. Willman reflected on the story this way. These days, just one young person running loose in California who keeps the seventh commandment is enough to draw someone to Jesus. Call it ordinary folks daring to become saints. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each one that's here tonight and I thank you for the time that we can spend in your word. We are grateful that you continue to speak to us and speak for us to the needs of our hearts. Uh, We realize that we live in a very pagan culture. A culture that's becoming more and more pagan by the day. A society that unless things change uh, will be dramatically different for our children and our grandchildren, a society that can corrupt them and destroy them if they do not know the truth of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that each of us in our own place might be witnesses for you. We apply it first in our own lives, and then we're a witness to those around us that a relationship with Jesus makes us different. I pray for each one here tonight that your word would find a lodging place in their heart to help them to realize that it's truth that applies to all of us. And our world is steadily trying to change the way we think, change what we accept. And day by day, unless we take in your word, that change is realized in our lives. We want to be changed, but we want to be changed by you. We don't want to be conformed to this world, but we want to be transformed by your Holy Spirit into the people that you would have us to be. Father, I pray that you'd help us now as we're going to leave the safety of this place and go back out into a world that is not safe help us to heed the warnings that you give us for we ask in jesus name amen